Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Pain Points, a podcast dedicated to helping you unlock your business challenges. Pulling on our network of clients, partners, experienced employees, and industry experts, we wanted to share with you our views and opinions on common business challenges. As a consulting firm that deals with these pain points on a daily basis, we thought we were well-placed to give insights on addressing these challenges. Enjoy the episode. Okay, great. So thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. So this is our podcast talking about uh, vetting in general uh, and also vetting at the Princess Trust and how Clarissus uh, was able to help you guys. So just to go around the table and do a round of introductions, um, Jen, do you want to kick off? Hi, I'm Jen. Um, I'm an AC working at Clarissus and I've been with Princess Trust for quite a while now, but I'm talking today on the vetting program that we helped roll out at the Princess Trust with Jennifer. Great, thanks, Jen. I'm Andy, obviously. I'm a senior consultant at Clarisys, uh, and I worked with Jen on this project. And Jennifer, and you confusingly, are... I'm Jennifer. Yes. I'm <laughs> head of safeguarding at the Prince's Trust and worked with Jen and Andy on this particular project. Cool, and thank you very much for joining us. Very welcome. Great. So, uh, just to set the scene, um, and please, Jennifer, correct me if I've got this wrong, but the Prince's Trust is uh, one of the UK's leading charities, obviously. Very large focus on helping young people Uh, and in particular helping young people who come from complex and difficult backgrounds and in particular helping them learn some new skills and get into work. I think that's an accurate depiction. And re-engage with education as well. So it's um, the the arc is quite wide. It's 11 to 30, which is, you know, very firmly puts us into the children category as well. So children and young people and and some of those backgrounds are really complex and it means it's a cohort of young people who can be quite hard to reach as well. But the Trust does some fantastic work across the UK with those. So we're going to talk today about how the Prince's Trust has been implementing a new system for processing uh, criminal records checks for volunteers uh, and staff members at the Prince's Trust. Back in May, June, uh, Jen and myself, Jen, not Jennifer, this is going to get confusing, isn't it? It is going to get confusing. We'll stick to it, though. It's always Jennifer for me, and I know you like Jen. Uh, So Jen and myself worked uh, with yourself, basically, on helping you select a new system. Um, But before we get into that, I think it'd be great to talk about vetting in general. And this might sound basic, but just bit of background on why it's important and I think maybe a worst case scenario if if your organization got it wrong why, why do we put time into this vetting where do you start really vetting's a horrible term because it sounds like it's something you do to somebody's body and it's quite painful but it's not it's a process that organizations that work with um anybody who's vulnerable so anybody where you are a, um, a supplier to a vulnerable client um, that could be children that could be people who are vulnerable because of their backgrounds it could be uh, vulnerability because they're not able, they don't have mental capacity lots of different vulnerabilities that you're looking at and vetting is a process to ensure that the people that you recruit as employees and volunteers are basically suitable to work with those groups and don't have a background that might make them unsuitable um, to work with those very vulnerable groups it's one of those things that should sound quite binary. So if you're working in a school setting, it's really easy. Or if you're working in the hospital setting, it's really easy because all of these places, you always have to have vetting checks. Within charities, the whole setup in the UK just gets really complicated. And it's not complicated because it's the charity's fault. It's complicated because the system in the UK is quite complicated. And trying to fit a system in the UK that was basically built for schools and hospitals and care homes, really obvious places where sort of like youth centres, etc. It's just quite tricky when you apply it to an organisation that works in different ways with a wide range from 11 to 30 in different settings, with different frequencies, with different intensities, and trying to apply that system to a charity like that just gets complicated. 
And I think the age range could play into that because obviously, you know, 11s, yes, they'd be classified as school age, but 30-year-olds, yeah. you may think, oh, is it necessary to vet someone dealing with a 30-year-old? But I guess it's the background and the complex history behind the individual. And that power dynamics, we're always trying to look at where is the power dynamic and where is the potential for that power dynamic to be exploited in some way. The vetting is the first line of defence for any organisation, so... I always stress to people, it is not a silver bullet. It absolutely isn't and shouldn't be treated as such. Your safeguarding processes uh, through training and induction and monitoring and responding to concerns are also part of that. But vetting is that first line. And it's the, if I gave any advice to any charity looking about how it does safeguarding is look at your vetting processes first of all. And to add that layer of complexity, if you look across the UK, there are different vetting systems for England and Wales, a different one in Scotland and a different one in Northern Ireland all broadly follow the same principles but all at different levels with their digital offer so the digital offer for Wales and England is pretty good the digital offer in Scotland is just not there yet and Northern Ireland's fairly straightforward but all slightly different and then shall I add another layer of complexity yes please so the other layer of complexity is that they're all dependent on your history of residence in the UK so if you've been traveling around for a year around the world and haven't been in the UK how do you check on that how do you get that international check piece as well because you then take it as an international level or if you're sending people overseas and they come back for up to spending a year in Australia or or uh, where we've also got uh, Prince's Trust or a year in Canada we've also got Prince's Trust how do you get a criminal records check for their time in that country and then gain build that picture up of that person's um, time overseas so and, and then obviously by country is going to vary significantly Absolutely. If you've got a country where you basically do have a state infrastructure, where there's a functioning police force, where there's functioning protection services, if somebody commits a crime, there's a record of it. If somebody does an offence that is recordable, then you'll get quite a good history. But if you go into a country where somebody commits a crime and nobody's any of the wiser, then it's really, really difficult to understand that background. So... Again, it's complexity, it's not a silver bullet, but it's also about really messaging this right. And I think when you, when you do, you know, inevitably any organisation has an internal comms function, the comms element of this is utterly critical. Your audience on the whole doesn't need to know about all the complexities behind it, doesn't need to know about all the thinking that's needs to be done or the business process that needs to be worked for. They just need some pretty simple messages. We undertake some form of criminal records check and background check on anybody who works or volunteers for us. And that is really all they need to know. If you're a recruiting manager, you might need to know a bit more. If you're the director of people and learning, need loads more. In my sort of technical lead roles, I hate the term expert. I cannot stand it. Um, <laughs> you're, you're definitely less than me, though, I think. Yeah, I just, well, also because I get things wrong sometimes as well. And I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that, so I do go scurrying back to my um, you know, policy documents and say, what did I say then? How does it work? But if, you, if you, you do need to know about the weak spots in the system and understand how they can be exploited if you, if, if you did really want to exploit them. But the the external messaging is that very, very simple. We do some form of check on anybody who wants to work or volunteer in our organisation. And I think that's something that I found initially quite difficult to get my head around in that England and Wales were the same sort of check, but Northern Ireland and Scotland, where the Prince's Trust is also active, were offering different checks. And that was something that I know Andy and I had to take into consideration when we were looking at the vendor selection process. Yeah. And what did the vendors do? And which checks did they offer? and the price of those checks, but also how far were they manual, how far were they automatic, and making sure that if they weren't automatic, how much work would then be needed for people at Prince's Trust 
to do that yeah and, and it's would that be a factor and how you do that and part, as part of the planning and when we were looking at the the business processes behind that and how you make that as simple as possible that the you know the if you've got an outward facing system that looks simple and hopefully fairly elegant then that really does indicate how much has gone on behind the scenes and um, but also we're talking about you know for organizations like charities who've not necessarily got a complete hold of all their data and their information sources trying to take away because doing a check is quite a manual process it's laborious frankly and if you can take that as much as possible away from what you can build through those systems the interface with the the vendors that's a really big part of it as well because it's not a fun job to do if you're doing it manually but if you can automate that as much as possible and I think, you know, if you look at schools, if you look at hospitals, because somebody comes in, you only recruit, you recruit infrequently. You don't, you know, a school maybe might recruit, I don't know, two, three teachers in one year, maybe a bit more. That's easy to do as a manual process. It's somebody sitting down, that's an afternoon's work for somebody yeah. and getting that check in. If you're recruiting 25 volunteers every week, um, or if you've got a, a, a staff cohort of just over a thousand and potentially, you know, at the Trust, we've got around about three to 4,000 volunteers. But if you look at some of the bigger charities, and I know we've spoken about this, we've got organisations, very large charities, reviewing their entire vetting process, and they're looking at numbers of 20,000, 50,000. That takes it onto a whole different scale, and how you make that a process that is as slick as possible for your, you know, brilliant volunteers who are giving up their time to support you but equally make it as robust as possible so it, it does work as, um, and it does prevent those who shouldn't be working with vulnerable groups coming into your organisation and that's that's quite a task. That the maths adds up quickly, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Number of people you're checking and then you know the frequency, the charity commission advising on a recheck process of every three years, um, the different services providing different recheck processes so people don't go for the entire system again. It is complex. And I was having one of those um, moments to say, how did this all start? So I remember going online once actually and just looking at how this system was built in the UK. And I found some document inevitably, you know, through Google search that was originally written to build this system. It's about 280 pages long, oh the God. rationale for how they built it. Yep. So it's it's not because the, the balance that they're trying to achieve between ensuring that the wrong people don't come into contact with vulnerable people, but also the GDPR elements, the data protection elements, and making sure that you do give people with a history of offending. So if it's minor offending, the opportunity to get into work. Balancing the, those two is complex and it is difficult. But when you look at what they do in Europe and, and internationally, I mean, in Europe, if you want a criminal records check, and you, you just go to your local town hall and ask for one. So it's driven by you as the individual in the UK, it's driven by the recruiter to ask that check. So it's, again, these subtle nuances about how different countries do their checks. And it is, yeah, it's complicated. And obviously the Princess Trust has a goal of reaching a million more young people as a strategic aim. So if we think about the number of interactions uh, yeah. involved in helping a million people, that's, uh, that's a lot of scope for things to go wrong. Lots of scope and lots of, and then closing that loop. So if you look at those interactions between staff, volunteers and children and young people, sometimes those interactions are not appropriate. So some, sometimes, you know, in any organisation, if, if you think this won't happen, then, it, then I would be alarmed. But you always have to be mindful that something could happen where a member of staff or a volunteer has behaved in a way that could harm or could potentially harm a child or, or a vulnerable person. And that needs to be dealt with. And so to close the loop, obviously you would do your internal process, your investigation, et cetera, et cetera, whatever form that took. 
And then to close that loop, you then need to report it back into the system. So you need to report it into the vetting services, so known as the disclosure and barring service across the UK. And they need to know about it because they need to know whether or not somebody, um, if some, they then moved on organisation, that's the whole point of this, that there is some information or intelligence on their certificate to say, actually, they're not appropriate because of what ha happened at Charity A or Charity B or School C. And so capturing that information and making sure that you close that loop by reporting it back into the state system also needs that process as well. Um, and it needs to be fought through to make sure it is fair, it needs to be shared appropriately, so there's different layers to this whole vetting cycle that need to be fought through as part of the vetting process. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Could we go back to, I guess, the beginning of, of this process uh, when Clara Assistant and Princess Trust started working? Um, obviously, we have the new platform up and running. Yes. And there's some various lessons there we can talk about. Could we reflect a little bit about the old process uh, that was in use at the Princess Trust and perhaps some of the challenges and, and your vision to change that? So the old process was um, a set of Excel spreadsheets, um, and I'm Cla not classic. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is many many charities, but they're all. And I'm not averse to Excel. I'm really I'm not. Um, I think if you do it well, and if you have one person in charge of that sheet, I, I like to call them admin terriers, <laughs> because they care. I like this phrase. If you've got somebody that is an admin terrier and absolutely is on it and cares and is proud of that data, then I am not uncomfortable with that approach, but, and this is the massive but, they are few and far between those people, um, they don't get the recognition, those who do it well don't get the recognition that they deserve, um, because it's not, you know, this is not a fascinating subject, but it, the, the, most of it is quite manual, most of it is inputting data, and most of it is keeping an eye on that data coming back out, so it is a process that is, lends itself to having a, being automated. So we had Excel spreadsheets, but if you don't look after your Excel spreadsheets, it becomes less useful and it becomes critically less safe. So, And also if you're doing uploads of quite a bit of information, then you need to have some sort of automated process to upload that information on a regular basis because also you're, you're, you're serving a client base, you're getting those checks through, the organisation wants to onboard somebody efficiently and quickly and if they can't start work or volunteering until that check is back in place and those references are back in place, it needs some slickness to that process and automation really is the only way to go for this. And, and the other thing on using Excel spreadsheets that jumps out to me is obviously this is very sensitive information. So if you have a spreadsheet with uh, several thousand entries about people's criminal records, yeah. that's obviously not information you'd want to lose track of. No. You know, hence the uniqueness of the admin terrier who can do that. And if they're not there and if you're not going to get them, then you need to think about it in a different way. I think also in terms of Excel spreadsheets, I know they've used Excel spreadsheets for similar yeah. sort of process up at the Prince's Trust in another region. And it's got to the point where there's so much data that it cannot support anymore yeah. so the spreadsheet will not load and that's when data is lost and yeah. that's obviously a big problem it was basically not working um but like a lot of other charities realizing that you need to be very very careful with this data and all the reasons why we know you need to be careful with data lending itself to that we were using three different suppliers to match those systems across the UK again in and of itself not bad wrong illegal or anything like that it, it means that you've got lots of people involved in this process and people leave you know you get staff turnover etc and that single source of truth becomes a little bit muddied and they, you, you really need to get 
rein that back in and have it as something that is not knocked by somebody leaving, that it, it survives that person leaving. So that's the other critical piece as well. So one system for all treks across the UK that can also cope with international checks that is as much as possible automated and built in. So, so really the challenge is uh, automation, yep. obviously getting away from spreadsheets, streamlining, so getting away yep. from having one, one platform, and then also handling some of the complexity around uh, the fact that you have a multi, uh, multi-layered complexity around the jurisdictions for checking. So those are the three main challenges, I think. And, and one more as well, what different levels of checks as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. This is the other so bit. It's three-dimensional, isn't it? It's, it's like a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. It really, really is. One of the oddities of the UK system is that you cannot apply for a check for which that person is not entitled to because they don't meet the eligibility criteria. That's an illegal thing to do. But if you don't get the check for which that person is eligible for, that also is not good so you really the enhanced yeah you've got basic in standard enhanced and enhanced with bards that's four different levels of check and they all have slightly different nuances to them and the only one that doesn't have any eligibility criteria is the basic check but all the others have very key eligibility criteria and your duties change according to which check it is and you have to close that loop every time so that's when my head starts to explode <laughs> a yeah. bit. It's, it's a complex set of requirements is is uh, my BA hat analysis yeah. of this so if we think back to when you first started working with us on, on this subject um, we obviously helped you we had this conversation we had, this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a much longer uh, more detailed conversation I think yes yeah we obviously uh, did some work with you on selecting the appropriate platform. Um, and one of the first things we did, and I think Jen, you're the expert in this one, was to map out the process that was in use. And I, f- I think that was a helpful process for you. Yeah, I think it was mapping out the current process and the ideal process and having a look at sort of a gap between the two. And obviously, it's very difficult to map out one current process because it differed in the different regions but also mapping out an agreed ideal process and then finding a platform that would support that and the requirements that fell out of that that mm-hmm. were needed to be supported by platform is sort of an initial step in making sure that we are make, getting the right platform. And then building the elig- understanding the eligibility criteria according to which check yep. as well. That was also another angle, but it was tricky. It was, yeah, so if you're not, you know, everybody knows what teachers do. Yeah, it's pretty binary. Everybody knows what a nurse, a doctor, a midwife does, and you know immediately what type of check that it does. Unbelievably, youth worker doesn't automatically entitle you to a check. You need to show contact with children or young people. And for over 18s, it's very specific work with adults, which is even it's quite a tricky threshold to meet. So you really need to know what that contact is to meet the eligibility criteria. Otherwise, the disclosure and borrowing service will refuse your check mm. and you're back to square one. And that means that you slow down your recruitment process, you slow down your onboarding, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one of, the, one of the things we did was to get everybody involved in the same room. Mm. Yes. And we, we fleshed out some key scenarios, if I remember correctly. We yep. basically said, okay, you go for a vetting check. There's, at the highest level, about three different outcomes you can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pass you fail because you've done something really bad or you have done something that might cause you to fail, might cause you to get a pass. And I think just having that high-level view was quite helpful. Jennifer, really useful. And it's, it's you know, I'm older than everybody in the room, listeners, so I do want to make the point. I'm jo- I am partially joking, but there is a point here. 
the move I've seen to visualizing and using business processes. So this is not completely new to me, but I've seen this in, in my previous line of work, but it's only been really happening in the past, I think, three to four years in the charity sector where they've really moved to that way of working and it's still quite new to people so I've li recently learned about um, through Jen um, and I actually even got a book about it as well <laughs> about sprints you know how you do that what what that means what that involves oh, I know this is, this is, music this is good yeah. no no I got Google's book was it Google oh anyway yeah it was some bloke in Google we, we have uh, an extensive library if you are yeah if you want to borrow a sprint book I'm surrounded by people who are experts at PowerPoint and doing visualizations etc which is great because I spend a lot of time in policy work lots of written documents lots of and I can regurgitate quite a lot of that bit being able to draw out of me with Jen and 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 everybody else in the room yeah. as well what that looks like as a, a client journey very difficult is is different and it takes a bit of head knocking and it's possibly quite frustrating as well um, as you discover the additional layers to this, it's very much unpeeling the onion. Yeah. And putting, if I mix my metaphors and putting that onion into a visual. Yeah, and making it sort of a visual that everyone can understand that isn't just a generic, oh, you know, this box means this, yeah. that is clear and everyone can understand so they can agree yeah. that it, that is their process and that's reflected. So we, uh, we've got the process down, we've got some scenarios down. We then came up with some requirements around that. Um, and the reason we did that was essentially to enable us to go and talk to the two vendors that we had in mind um, for potentially supplying your, your platform. Once we had those requirements down, we obviously did quite a, quite a detailed assessment of those two vendors, and that involved quite a lot of talking to them, um, quite a few demos, if I remember correctly. H how did you find that process? So the, the, the challenge I always find with vendors, and this is every vendor, is that they're selling, and it's cutting through that to actually understand so I know you know amongst all the other charities we all talk with each other we all know who can meet our respective requirements and I think with you know doing things at scale is it really needs to be thought through so you're having to cut through the sales chat so I think that I find it immensely frustrating when any vendor comes in to try and persuade you why it's the right thing to do you, that doesn't matter you're there you're already there the, the, you don't need to have that discussion about why it's the right thing to do it's then being able to understand what they can offer you. And I think one of the things that you guys did around doing the an exercise that I haven't done before about the, uh, the how important is this functionality to you was really, really useful. Th yeah, that was, I think that was possibly the most useful exercise, the one to 10 exercise of importance levels. It started to mean that you look at some sort of technical gadget that they're able to offer as part of their service and say, Yes, it's great, but it's not great for us. It just doesn't work. And actually, the different way of doing it. And I think it was interesting because we had a lot of people yes. who are part of that prioritization workshop. So, for example, someone who's actually going to be using the system yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis was far more important mm. was, I want it to look nice and I want yeah. it to be easy to use. Whereas someone like yourself was more concerned about what is it going to support all the checks that we need? Yeah. Is it going to be able to hold all that data? And then someone like the head of technology would be saying, well, does it align to our systems? Are those integrations in place? So it was gathering everyone's views, but also understanding what the business as a whole needed and where the priorities lay. And particularly when you have legacy systems as well that the organisation has, which are not going to go anywhere anywhere soon, that's the other, the other challenge to bring in as well. So you may have to be building two products, two um, 
you may have to be talking to two systems using the same type of r rationale, etc. So yeah, there's an additional layer of complexity around legacy systems as well. And, and bringing all those those components together into one view was one of, I think, the key challenges. Yes. On the one side, we had uh, the technical requirements, yeah. so can it actually plug into some of your legacy systems? And then on the other side, we had, can it actually meet the, uh, the use cases around those key yes. scenarios that come up with? It's interesting, the priority point you raised and that being valuable to yourself. I remember one of the vendors had a very, um, very slick mobile app. Yes. Which, which was nice, but uh, I think the danger, obviously, in those demonstrations is you look at that and you think, ah, you fall in love this with tech. Exactly. Um, but does it actually meet the requirements you're looking for? And will people use it? So they're looking, they're, you know, you need a particular type of app on your phone. You might need a particular type of phone. And when I look at our volunteer base, if they don't have that phone or that app, then what? So I think it's useful in some circumstances. So it's going back to that, that human piece and saying, okay, what's the more useful way of us no what is the mo not even useful because I do think the phone, the app would have been great but actually is it going to be used by people as well so that human interface does that work and, and then weighting that correctly as well yeah. yeah and it might do in future give it another few years it actually might be a no-brainer way of doing it and we might need to say actually this is the only way we will accept those documents I just don't think as an organization um quite there yet you can't make that red line approach you've got to use an app because it will cut out a lot of volunteers exactly exactly so we obviously came up with a recommendation yep for vendor one i'll refer yep. to as and you've obviously gone with purchasing that, that particular supplier we have yes how do you feel with the um the outcome so far so i think we've got two systems we've got one system around um that it needs to speak to which is our um hr database and that's looking good mm -hmm. the legacy database unsurprisingly is proving to be a little bit more difficult so be it I think there's, there's there is another way of doing it and so we're just working through but the HR database is a, a relatively straightforward process and it around um, you know bulk uploads of information and that can be done and then in terms of the HR operations that can be done on a regular weekly basis so we've got some um, we've got a very clear timeline to those applying for jobs um, that your check will be uploaded on this day and typically will take about this amount of time because the other complexity, I'll put another complexity in, is that you as an organisation have control of the process until the point that it leaves the disclosure and barring service and goes to the local yes. police forces. So once you've sent it to the DBS, you as an organisation lose control. So they have SLAs, obviously, and you can do chase-ups, but it can sit with the local force, police force, or um, for several weeks sometimes. So you have to manage expectations really clearly around your bit in it. It's a bit like applying. For, I mean, I kept on using the analogy with you about applying for a passport. So if you get that bit wrong, that will be the first delay. The rest of it is down to the system and understanding that it can be delayed. But yeah, so on the whole, it's working. I think we're in that first cycle. I think the, I think the bit that's been easy, much, much by far easiest is criminal records checks is references. That's the difficult bit. So, but that's because of the human element of having to track down Joe Bloggs who will uh, say, oh yeah, no, no, I'll definitely give you that reference and I'll get that reference back in time. So it's when it leaves the um, the automated process and goes into the hands of humans that that, that becomes the, the lag piece. But you have to do your comms to, to match that. And just again, the sheer distribution of people involved in this process is, is uh, well, to me, I was quite staggered actually in how complex it is. Yeah. Sort of the backlog of people who you would have to check who yeah. haven't been checked by the system already. Yeah. 
um, is obviously something else that needs to be brought into consideration. So processing those all through and being, and yeah, it, it is, it has many different arms to it. If you start pulling this out as a spider diagram, it becomes quite dizzying, but it can be done, but it just need, really does need thinking through. Great. I think that is the main series of points to discuss around the vetting selection piece. Jen, was there anything else to add? Really interesting to get involved in because it was the first thing that I'd done around vetting and I learned a hell of a lot about how important it is, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I, I, I mean, I'd be interested. I think if anybody did it at massive scale, that would be... So, you know, if you look at an organisation like Scouts, they do about 80,000 checks a year and that is an interesting project to do, but yeah. Great. In that case, thank you very much, Jennifer, no for your time. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed discussing it again. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Nevermind the Pain Points. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcasting app or site. We would love your feedback, so please leave a review or drop us an email at podcast.clarisys.com. And for more information about us, visit our website, clarisys.com.